0: Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio.
1: Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to World Footprints, the leading voice in socially responsible travel and lifestyle. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. If you're looking for places to visit in the Midwest, we have two capital suggestions, Indianapolis, Indiana, and my hometown of Lansing, Michigan. In Indy, you'll find the world's largest children's museum, the Children's Museum of Indianapolis. And in Lansing, you'll find one of only 13 Capitol buildings, including the U.S. Capitol in D.C., that have been designated as a National Historic Landmark, the beautiful Michigan State Capitol.
2: Thanks, dear. Today, we are going to take you to the world's largest and fourth oldest Children's Museum as we explore the Children's Museum of Indianapolis and share how a children's museum can change a child's life in ways that are unimaginable with the museum's Kimberly Harms.
3: Spencer Hahn is a little boy who's eight years old and I first saw Spencer and we have a mascot called Rex. It's this big dinosaur, probably seven feet tall and I saw this little boy with braces on his legs running up to him and hugging him and then um, he went and turned around and watched the bumblebee performance and he was jumping up and down and screaming and laughing and I thought, what
2: passion this little boy has. Finally, from its opening in 1879, the Michigan State Capitol Building has served as the gateway to the mid-Michigan region. Boldly standing in the heart of Lansing, Michigan's capital city, the Capitol Building draws more than 100,000 visitors annually. We will share the stories of this remarkable historic structure with the Michigan Capitol's chief guide,
4: Matt Van Acker. Probably one of the, the major aspects of the restoration is restoring the building's decorative art. We have over nine acres of hand-painted design. Um, we believe that makes our building probably one of the most highly decorated buildings in, in the United States and probably one of the best examples of Victorian artwork that you'll find in, in the country. We hope you'll enjoy our journey to the
2: captivating capitals of the Midwest, Indianapolis and Lansing. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. Visit and connect with us at worldfootprints.com.
1: Since its founding in 1925, the Children's Museum of Indianapolis has become the largest children's museum in the world. Drawing more than one million visitors annually, the Children's Museum has become a leading educational, cultural, and art center for kids and families all over the Midwest, and as we learned from Kimberly Harms, the Children's Museum of Indianapolis is changing lives in ways you wouldn't imagine. Kim, thank you so much for joining us today on World Footprints. You are very welcome. It's my pleasure. So tell us a little bit about the Children's Museum of Indianapolis. Your claim to fame is really you're the world's largest children's museum.
3: Yes. In fact, in February, we were named by USA Today and 10 Best as the best family museum in the entire nation as voted Upon by the actual readers. So it's not a subjective person mm-hmm. or object, you know, I mean, it's somebody that across the country everybody kind of put their opinion in and said, This is my favorite. So we were very, very lucky to be named that and, and
1: proud of it. Well, congratulations Thank on you. that. So the history of the museum mm-hmm. has, the, the start of the museum has a very interesting history. Tell mm-hmm. us about that. Well,
3: it started out with a woman who obviously had a lot of interest in children and families. and and it had collections that she wanted to have shown to the rest of, of the community at that time. And then what started as just a few pieces quickly gathered into more and more pieces. And so then eventually it outgrew the space that it was in in one of the historic uh, mansions of the downtown Indianapolis area. And we moved to our current location. And, and it opened um, probably, I think it was 87, 88 years ago. So it's a long-standing children's museum for the community. Mm-hmm. And has rapidly grown to a children's museum that attracts visitors from all over the country and even other countries. So we're very very proud of that. It now is the largest children's museum in the world at about 472,000 square feet. Mm -hmm. We sit on about 19 acres we have other properties nearby that um, as a a result of helping the community by building new housing that are also owned by the museum but for the museum proper that's where it is. Uh, We have over 120,000 artifacts in our collection, and they range from anything you can imagine we have, I think, in that collection. We have interesting fossils, we have Americana, we have European collections, we have art collections, and it's really fascinating to just kind of take a walk through kind of the I call it the vault (laughs) it's this huge area of space that they have categorized and and they have it very logically organized Mm -hmm. but for just a general lay person to walk through there your eyes are open your mouth's to the floor and you see toys from when you were little and I don't want to give away too much, but that would be five decades ago. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so all kinds of things, and even modern day toys. And it's funny to watch people, what their individual interests are. I was never a Star Wars huge fan, mm-hmm. but some of my colleagues are. And they'll walk through and they go, oh, look, there's so-and-so, or there's that. And, and then there'll be somebody else that when I was little, I collected Madame Alexander dolls. And I'll be, oh, there's Madame Alexander dolls, and that one's from Russia or China. And then there'll be really interesting fossils. We have very rare fossils Mm -hmm. that... um,
1: you know, I mean, so there's something for everybody in every age. Right, well I I noticed, you know, you also have Bumblebee, so for the younger generation the Transformer, you know fans, you have Bumblebee, you have the monkey head from the Indiana Jones movie, and a pangolin, which I never knew about before, some type Mm -hmm. of reptile skeleton Um, so you do have a lot and I think my uh, interest in the museum as well I love the fact that you guys are focused on on the arts, science, and humanities, and you're really kind of taking up the mantle Mm -hmm. where our public school systems um, have Mm -hmm. not.
3: Well, I think we view ourselves as educators very much so. We actually have educators on staff. We have a preschool on our property. So a lot of folks don't even know that. But every single exhibit that we... Curate or open has a very strong educational component, and all meet national course standards. We have units of study for teachers who bring students on field trips there, so they're um, age appropriate. So various uh, units of study for each age group, mm-hmm. and um, one of the things that I enjoy the most is you started with arts, is that we have historical and scientific things that we bring to life through the power of art and actor interpreters. So it's really fascinating. Everything from really funsy kinds of things, like Bumblebee, if you're Mm -hmm. not familiar. um, It was the character in the Transformer movie. So we have the actual movie prop, which is 17 feet tall. So as you come into the museum, kids are like, oh, Bumblebee! (laughs) And then a very funny story. I know I'm kind of digressing here. But we also had something from Avatar, and so they had those... um, huge suits of, I forget what they're called now, but the guys would sit inside them and they'd walk through the jungle. Right. And so they looked older and they were kind of, not raggedy, but silver and dirty. And this one little boy goes, look daddy, it's Bumblebee's grandpa! <laughs> <laughs> and I just laughed so hard because we, during that temporary exhibit we had one of those suits. But um, getting back to the actor and performers, so we have an actor-performer who performs as Bumblebee. So they mm-hmm. will roll him out on his cart and it looks like this um I don't know, eight-foot-long plastic car, and then all of a sudden the music plays, and then the door opens, mm-hmm. and then the other door opens, and then you realize it's arms of a person. And then the person stands up, and it's Bumblebee, and he starts dancing and talking in that radio voice to the audience. And then we have things on a much more serious note in the Power of Children exhibit, mm-hmm. where we have actor interpreters that perform as Meep Geese, who was the woman who helped... Um, the Anne Frank family when they were hiding during the Holocaust or Anne Frank's father Mm -hmm. or... um that area represents three children who overcame incredible odds to inspire people in the world really today even. Mm -hmm. So Anne Frank was the child of the 40s. Ruby Bridges is the child of the 60s who was the first to integrate schools in the South. And so she still comes to the museum and talks to school groups about four times a year. And in fact she brought Charles Burks who was one of the federal marshals. If you're not familiar with Ruby Bridges, she integrated the schools in the South. And a lot of people know her by that Norman Rockwell painting where you see the little six-year-old girl with the federal marshals walking into a school. That was Ruby. So Ruby comes and talks about her experience about being bullied, which is such a prevalent topic in today's society. And Charles Burks, who is the only surviving federal marshal that took her to school in those days, and so they had a reunion at the museum and talked about it Mm. to everybody that was there that day. So that was very heartwarming and inspiring to hear their story and how he watched what he called this brave little soldier, mm-hmm. go to school every day, and just, you know, stand up to people who are taunting her, throwing things at her, and how scary that must have been for a little girl, and how brave she was. And then um, then the child of the 80s, which is Ryan White, who is the young man afflicted with HIV due yes. to a blood transfusion. His mother, Jeannie white she also comes about five, six times a year to talk to children and families about being bullied, about acceptance, about how the world has changed, and mm-hmm. what you can do to have a more positive effect on the world. My goodness. So uh, actor interpreters that perform each of those roles so that kids that might not really be into reading a book or mm-hmm. having somebody just kind of lecture them, then they see the real human compassionate side and then they ask questions. And isn't mm-hmm. that what learning's all about? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's
1: almost like you're doing a living history yeah. for these children. And I think that's wonderful. And I know you go beyond just the boundaries mm-hmm. of the museum because you have traveling uh, excursions for kids kids, um, something that's near and dear to mine and Ian's heart, you know, um, dinosaur digging, digging for dinosaurs. So you're kind of growing, you know, the young paleontologist Um, and I know you do a trek uh, as well, talk a little bit about those programs. Sure. Um, I actually went on my
3: first dinosaur day this past summer, <laughs> so I'm very excited. I never uh, perceived myself to be a paleontologist, mm-hmm. but it certainly fuels that hunger certainly. once you get out there. Um, and I'll admit, I was a skepticist. I thought, well, we might find an arrowhead or something. I mean, that's how much I knew about it. Right. So we got to Face South Dakota, which is a very small town, ranch town, and my son, who's nine years old, and my husband and I, and we went out. Out there And I was amazed because not only it, it was kind of a rivershed area where mm-hmm. a lot of the fossils had washed through. So you don't find um, skeletons that are completely together. Mm-hmm. You find various fossils that kind of washed together. Right. And so they actually found, um, my son found a rare tooth and he also found a knuckle and then part of a nose, the bridge of a nose of another um, animal. And so so we were just fascinated because it was almost like you're panning for gold, and all of a sudden you're finding nugget after nugget after nugget, and mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it. And then that was just surface finds. Mm-hmm. Then we went to where the actual dig site was, and um, my husband found a large tibia of a duck dinosaur. My son found... Um, well, he didn't find, but he'll claim that he found because he was next to the man who found it. <laughs> there was a, he found a mandible, and then and it was just fascinating. There were about twenty people, children and families of mm-hmm. all ages. There were grandparents with their grandchildren. There was my husband's son and I, and um, and so they find all these fossils, and then it's not just the gold digging or the fossil finding but then we have our um, on staff paleontologists are there on the trip so they describe to everyone well this is what you found Mm -hmm. or sorry honey that was just a rock or that might have been a horse Mm -hmm. you know bone or something Um, but this might have been a 70 million old Duckbill. And so, how often do you do these trips, though? Every year we have a children and family one, and they sell out very rapidly. There are about three or four of them, and they're usually in July. And then we also have an adults only dig, so -hmm. that adults that might not have the patience to have children who don't have as much patience. Right. Um, that don't combine as well. That way, they can go, and it's a little quieter, and, mm-hmm. and certainly a lot more in depth and richer, deeper experience for sure, them. Sure. But they uh, they graph and plot where they found it, so so that everybody learns. The story is not just the fossil itself, but where it's found, what Mm -hmm. it's found next to. Was it attacked by another animal? Was it a watershed? Was it, you know, all those things,
1: which are just fascinating. Well, and speaking of dinosaurs, you have one uh, coming, or uh, you have one that will be with you uh, through the year. And it's a dinosaur that we know very much about because we've gone on digs in Montana. uh Oh, Um, and that's Leonardo. Oh,
3: yes, yes. Well, I'm so thrilled to hear that you've been <laughs> to Montana. And Montana has a fabulous dinosaur trail. Indeed. And so that's definitely something that your listeners might want to check out, too. And in fact, Leonardo is from Malta and mm-hmm. the Judith River F- Foundation formation. I hope I said that right. Um, Leonardo is the most complete dinosaur ever discovered in the world. There are only five known mummy dinosaurs mm-hmm. ever, one of them is at the bottom of. The sea because it was being transported, I think, to Europe and something happened and so he was lost forever. So that's a tragic story about one of them. So now there are four known mummified dinosaurs, and when I say mummified, this particular dinosaur is it's fascinating to me because when you go to most museums you see bones Kind of bones on a stick You know, Mm -hmm. I mean They're all put together Like a giant jigsaw puzzle But many times You only find Half of a dinosaur So they make plastic casts Of the rest of it Mm -hmm. Leonardo is Is the full monty (laughs) i mean you see the musculature on him you see the skin impressions Mm -hmm. and this is going to sound really silly but i went with my colleague to look at him before we presented him in the museum and when you look at him his head is kind of flipped to the side his neck is is flipped to the side and um what was fascinating to me is it looked like he—you w- realized that this was once a living creature. You know, it wasn't just the bones. You see his muscles as his neck is twisted this side. You see
1: that he really lived. I'm thrilled that you get to show Leonardo to the, the kids in the Indianapolis and the people who travel mm-hmm. um, from around the region to see him. He is a must see uh, exhibit. Um, I also am very, very impressed that you guys are have been able to also attract, bring um, to the museum the terracotta warriors. Yes. The real warriors, the real not just warriors. replicas. Yes. Yeah, that's amazing. Having seen them and knowing how protective China is mm-hmm. um, with those, those uh, images, I, I'm impressed that you're able to get them. And so they'll be... At the museum this entire year. Yeah,
3: um, they came to the museum May 10th of 2014, and we will have them through November 2nd. And we are thrilled because it's the first time ever that the Chinese government has partnered with a family institution. Typically, you'll find them on a um, at an art museum, and as a piece of art or cultural relic. This is the first time they've ever partnered with a children's museum, and they said the reason being is children are our future, and they want children to understand the rich culture because when you go to China, they'll know what dynasty everything from whence it came, whereas in the United. United States, we tend to forget what happened 50 years ago or 100 years ago. They know centuries. Um, and so they really want people to understand what they're so proud of. Mm-hmm. And for those who aren't familiar with terracotta warriors, they were these clay figures built by the first emperor of China who really changed the entire world because he um, monetized, I mean, he, he changed everything so that it was consistent across the board. So he had all these factions of that land that he kind of unified by giving them all the same language, all the same monetary system, all the same across the board. And um, he was very consumed about living forever. And so rumors were that he would take drink mercury because he thought that would prolong his life, which, of course probably led to his demise <laughs> <laughs> than he, <laughs> he, he thought. Probably, yeah. um, but he created these clay warriors, and it's fascinating because the farmer digging for water just kind of stumbled upon it. And you can imagine as he overturned that spade of dirt and saw a warrior face staring back, you know, face to face with a warrior that was ancient from 2,200 years ago, what that must have felt like, I'd have been a little nervous. <laughs> right, right. But then they called in archaeologists and ended up finding 2,000 of them, and they they believe there are 8,000 of them. Mm -hmm. So we're thrilled because we'll have um, eight of those warriors at our museum. The focus will be on the paint of the warriors, which a lot of people who may know about the warriors don't realize that they were once vibrantly painted. So we'll focus on what kind of minerals make which colors, how they determine that they were once painted. Mm -hmm. And one of the warriors we have actually still has remnants of paint on him. So we're very excited about that. And um, we'll also have a hundred other artifacts from that site. So you'll see these jeweled daggers and urns and bells and jewelry and all kinds of fascinating things that the emperor would have taken with him in the afterlife.
1: Do you have anyone coming from China? We actually have people from
3: the site in Xi'an that will be coming. We also have been working very closely with the Chinese government in that we have people from the Chinese embassies here in the United States and then um, also a couple of other um, dignitaries from China,
1: so we're very, very excited about that. Excellent. Well, you know, and that's another thing that I find very fascinating about your museum, and I think what... um, distinguishes you guys from some of the other museums out there is that you also foster these international relationships. Talk about some of the initiatives that you've uh, you've engaged in with, with con- other countries, other museums abroad. Sure. Well, we've worked um, with China, obviously. Before the Take Me There
3: China, that's another exhibit that will open concurrently with the Terracotta Warriors. Before Take Me There China, we had Take Me There Egypt. So this space is dedicated to the awareness of different cultures around the world because most of us, frankly, are never going to be able to afford to travel to China or travel to Russia or Egypt or other beautiful, wondrous places in the world. So this is our attempt at, at immersing people in those cultures. So you'll learn everything about um, the housing there. When we went to China, we sent several research teams to learn everything we could about China. We took pictures of the roof tiles to the ground. Um, we lived with Chinese families. We went to China. Chinese schools and so we replicate those homes in different generations so you can see how that's changed over time from the hutongs of the ancient city you know, or not ancient but long ago hutongs in the inner city to the more modern high rises and how that's changed the way of life in China. You learn about the food, which is my son's favorite area. <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> we'll have a, a mini restaurant where the the menu is in Chinese or in Mandarin mm-hmm. and then children will learn about noodles and um, dumplings and how they're made and so they learn a lot about the the culture from that perspective. Food is such an integral part of how we live and, um, and they'll learn to say some words in Chinese or Mandarin. They'll learn um, there will be a calligraphy shop where they'll get to learn oh, calligraphy. Like- we'll have actual monks from the Shaolin Temple coming to mm-hmm. talk about their form of martial arts. We'll have um, calligraphists come We'll have two Chinese uh, teacher exchanges, for lack of a better word. We're working with the Confucius Institute, and they're bringing two of their teachers over from China. So they'll teach musical instruments. They'll teach calligraphy. They'll um, talk about the ancient um, traditions. They'll talk about the tea culture, which is very rich in China, and, mm-hmm. um, so it's it's just fascinating to see all those. And that's just in the take-me-there space. And that changes every three to four years. So as I said, it was Egypt before. Now it's evolving into China. And then um, we work with the Dominican Republic government. So we have an underwater archaeologist, which I know sounds really funny because Indiana is a landlocked state. But, but IU has quite a prolific um, department that yes. Charlie Beaker, who is the professor, discovered the only pirate shipwreck in the Caribbean. So when you hear pirates of the Caribbean, there's really only one they ever proved was there. And some (laughs) wonder whether he was really a pirate or if he was kind of framed by the English government at the time. And that's Captain Kidd. So um, we have a cannon from Captain Kidd's shipwreck, the Kara Merchant, that is on display at the museum. And this is what I think is so cool, because if you're into history and lore, it's like, ooh, the pirate and how fun. But if you're into science, then you learn how they're taking this cannon using what they call electrolytic reduction and it's like sending electricity through water and it breaks off all the encrustations of the cannon Mm -hmm. so then you see how it evolved from this big lumpy looking log that people were literally scuba diving and um, snorkeling over in about 12 feet of water not knowing what was there to now you can see that it was actually cannon because all the Things have fallen off of it. So then you learn how the science reveals the mysteries of history. The mm-hmm. science tells you the story that proves this really was Captain Kidd's shipwreck because of the ballast stones that were river stones found in freshwater that were found next to it. So why would you have freshwater rocks next to something in the saltwater? Mm-hmm. And um, the way the rivets were on the ship and the type of wood they used that was only found in India. So like you, you put all these pieces together and it's like, yes, aha, that was Captain Kidd's shipwreck.
1: Kim, honestly, I'm getting so excited (laughs) hearing about these things. You know, you're called the Children's Museum of Indianapolis, but there is a huge adult element to it. I mean, you know, from my perspective, you know, Leonardo, I mean, I think that's so cool. The terracotta warriors, I'm a scuba diver, and I'm thinking, ooh, you know, great, you know, underwater archaeology. You guys are growing a lot of young people into paleontologists and artists and um, global citizens and and even environmentalists Mm -hmm. you have some sustainable initiatives that you're also uh engaging in share those a with us. Sure. Um, we partner with Dow Agri Sciences. So a lot of
3: businesses too want to supplement education and this is their way of giving back to the community. So Eli Lilly and Company Foundation, Dow Agro Sciences work with us and we have an area called Science Works. And within Science Works there's a science port, there's a biotech lab where children and families can come and learn about the environment and all kinds of things and they have helped us create this rain garden, which is a rooftop garden. So when you're in our atrium you look out at this beautiful array of flowers (laughs) and then you learn about how it's sustainable and how you can create sustainability at your own home. In Indianapolis, we have kind of a combined sewer system. So we have the sewage that goes in with the the rainwater. So if there's big flood, um, it really puts a lot of pressure on that water system. So by having a sustainable um, rain garden, you help take some of that pressure off of the sewage system by maintaining it there and then um, it filters it through the 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 nutrient the earth and the plants themselves but the really cool thing about that is is if you think about in nature there's 50 percent of the water is reabsorbed into the water table but urban areas really don't have that benefit because you have so many sidewalks and streets and so this is kind of our way of trying to show people you know what it doesn't matter where you live you can still do something to impact your carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. So we have programs for families where they can come and learn more about that and how to make their own rain barrels. So maybe you don't have a big field that you can utilize or you don't have a rooftop. You're in that middle apartment or there's, you know, what can you do to
1: make a difference? So those are some of our programs. That's excellent. Now, I cannot let you go Mm -hmm. without uh, asking you to tell us um, about how the museum Uh, offers very transformative life experiences. And there's one young man that we're going to talk about you're going to share with me uh, in particular. Yes,
3: um, this is very near and dear to my heart. So I apologize if I get sappy ahead of time Um, Spencer Hahn is a little boy who's 8 years old and I first saw Spencer and we have a mascot called Rex it's this big dinosaur probably 7 feet tall and I saw this little boy with braces on his legs running up to him and hugging him and then um, he went and turned around and watched the bumblebee performance and he was jumping up and down and screaming and laughing and I thought what passion this little boy has and then I found as Paul Harvey would say the rest of the story he was born, um, he had a stroke in utero, and his mother was a single mom, didn't have a lot of money, and we have what we call an access pass. So if you live in the state of Indiana, you can come for just $1 with certain, um, if you qualify certain state and federal standards. So she couldn't afford all these medical things for her child that she was told, doctors told her he would never walk, he would never talk. When you look at his MRI when he was nine months old, half half of his brain never formed, just never formed as a result of the stroke. Stroke and this rare blood clotting um, issue that he has, so the doctors were, you know, very pessimistic, honestly, saying that he would never do these things. Well, she wasn't going to take their answer. She wasn't going to take that for what his fate would be. So when he was still an infant, she brought him to the Children's Museum, and she had watched therapists work with him when they went to these medical programs, and she replicated those at the museum. And so she learned how to do sign language, thinking he'd never talk, and she thought, well, I'm not just. Going to point to a crocodile in the book and, and then sign the word crocodile. She wanted to show him the real deal, and of course, ours isn't real, it's the fossil of one. <laughs> So don't worry, you're not going to get snapped at as you walk in. <laughs> um, so she wanted to have all these real world items that she could show him and sign. And so uh, one thing led to another, and in this playscape area, he actually took his first steps. And she said she couldn't believe it. And then she said he t- he made his first words were at the carousel. He had this giraffe that he rides that was his favorite animal on the carousel. So he he got all excited and said, "Mama." And so she was telling this story because they won this national award to come to Washington, D.C. and talk about museums' advocacy and how it transformed their life, how it changed their life. And so this truly is their story, not our story. We happen to be the lucky recipient of them being members and us getting to know them. But she firmly believes that coming to the museum and experiencing these things firsthand changed her son's life forever. And so when they, um, they, spoke at Capitol Hill, they talked to senators and congressmen, and Spencer like any 8 year old, was not real patient in all those meetings <laughs> but he was just a joy because he would, he, he wrote his own little book that he brought to show them and put his favorite pictures in there, and so he was so excited, so he calls it his museum that's my museum oh, and so, um, so his mom gave the speech, and then at the end, he surprised everybody by going up and giving his speech which was only a sentence or two and he said I love my museum because they love me they're my family and I love Rex which is the mascot well he didn't know but Rex was there to surprise him (laughs) so it was um it was really special stop I know <laughs> so he was jumping up and down and screaming and I have pictures of him where his tie is flying sideways <laughs> and there was not a dry eye in the house it was just so inspiring to know that here's a child who will never attend a public school but the supplemental education as you mentioned that he gets every day that he visits his museum has changed his life forever he now walks he now talks you know we can't take credit for that that's the heart and soul and inspiration of a mother and. her her son but the the tools that she chose to use to make that happen absolutely we will claim responsibility and be so proud that we were part of it
1: well kim i appreciate you sharing Mm -hmm. all the stories i appreciate what the museum does for the community for the world and just the, the the cultural gaps that you're bridging um, thank you very much, and thank you so much for, for coming to Washington, D.C. today to uh, to visit with us and, and share the Children's Museum of Indianapolis with our audience. What is your website? How can people find out more about you?
3: Sure, it's childrensmuseum.org, so that's C-H-I-L-D-R-E-N-S, museum, dot org. Then we also have a, a very robust social media site, so hashtag at TCM, so
1: that's at the Children's Museum, so at TCM. Well, Kimberly Harms uh, with the Children's Museum of Indianapolis, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you. I
2: appreciate it. After the break, our next stop in the Midwest takes us to Lansing, Michigan, where we will journey inside the Michigan State Capitol Building.
4: Probably one of the the major aspects of the restoration is restoring the building's decorative art. We have over nine acres of hand-painted designs. Um, We believe that makes our building probably one of the most highly decorated buildings in in the United States. States, and probably one of the best examples of Victorian artwork that you'll find in, in the country. Next, as World Footprints continues.
1: Hello, my name is Minnie Johnson. I'm from Ann Arbor, Michigan.
3: I really enjoy listening to the World Footprint radio show whenever I have an opportunity to do so. I've gained so much information from the show.
0: More than 100 million wild animals are killed each year, illegally. Poaching is just one of the risks animals face at our hands. I'm Tom Barry. I'm an actor. I grew up in the beautiful rural countryside of Ohio, where animals roamed freely in the open forests. I have a deep concern to help preserve those open spaces for our wildlife friends so they can live and thrive like they used to. Destruction of their habitats threaten their very existence. The best way to protect wildlife is to protect the land where they live. The Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust works with private landowners to protect wildlife, to preserve natural habitats, and establish permanent sanctuaries. To learn more or to work with the Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust, call 800-729-SAVE. That's 800-729-SAVE. Or visit wildlifelandtrust.org. Thank you. My father had prostate cancer. My grandfather, two great uncles, died from it. I wish I'd known about the family history, but it just wasn't talked about. My name's Lonnie. I had my prostate removed in May of 1995, and I'm still here. So there is life after prostate cancer. I'm living proof. One thing I would want to share with any man that thinks that he may have prostate cancer is number one, get it checked. Secondly, you have time after the diagnosis. Read, learn, go talk with your doctor, and make some decisions. Because knowledge is power. It cannot be understated. No.
1: Prostate
3: cancer is the most common cancer among men in Michigan. If you've been diagnosed, talk with your health
1: care provider about your options and visit ProstateCancerDecision.org today. Sponsored by the Michigan Department of Community Health, the Michigan Cancer Consortium, and the Michigan Association of Broadcasters.
3: Hi, I'm Nancy from Lansing, Michigan. I'm here in New Orleans, and I enjoy listening to the World Footprints Radio.
0: You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick.
1: Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. From its opening in 1879, the Michigan State Capitol Building has served as the gateway to the mid-Michigan region. Boldly standing in the heart of Lansing, Michigan's capital city in my hometown, The Capitol building draws more than a 100,000 visitors annually. This structure, which is a National Historic Landmark, almost became a victim to the wrecking ball. We will share some of the stories of this remarkable historic structure with the Michigan Capitol's chief guide, Matt Van Acker. When we visited the Capitol, crews were at work refurbishing the building, so pardon the background noise. Here's Matt with some history on the Capitol.
4: The Capitol was built in uh, 1879, uh, about 20 years ago, from uh, 1989 to 1992, it was fully restored. And the goal of the project was to make it look as it did originally, as close as we could come to what it looked like originally. Uh, probably one of the, the major aspects of the restoration is restoring the building's decorative art. We have over nine acres of hand-painted designs. We believe that makes our building probably one of the most highly decorated buildings in, in the United States and probably one of the best examples of Victorian artwork that you'll find in, in the country. Uh, much of the original artwork had been painted over uh, through the years and attempts you know, at modernization. Um, some places we had up to 20 layers of paint that concealed the original designs and decorations. And in those areas, the artists literally had to strip through uh, all those layers of overpaint to get to the first coat and find out what it looked like originally. Um, incredible craftsmanship in the original construction and in the restoration Um uh, artisans that came in and would uh, um, make uh, pine paneling and they would paint it to make it look like marble and to make it look like walnut. Uh, cast iron columns that were painted uh, to look like marble. Um, plaster columns and pilasters painted to look like marble. And The reason for doing that originally was to save money, this faux finishing. It was quite a bit cheaper to use, cheaper products. And then hire artists to come in to paint them to look like the more expensive materials. And we did the same thing during the the restoration because it had been done that way um, originally. So I think as we head upstairs, you're going to be very impressed with the the building's artwork, and I think we'll do that. Okay. in the basement. Yeah. Right now.
0: Yeah, ground floor. Yeah, yeah, we'll start on
4: the ground floor. Ground floor was used mostly for... um, Overflow, sort of, in our surplus departments and um, in storage. We had an arsenal down on the ground floor originally, okay. um, where we kept um, weapons, muskets, ammunition, Gatling guns, hmm. and uh, originally all the departments of the state of Michigan were headquartered in this one building. And um, as the state grew and the departments grew, they ran out of space. So one by one, they were moved out to other locations and. Now the Capitol is pretty much a legislative office building. It houses the House and Senate, and the governor has an office here. But we'll see some of the historic areas where, like, the Supreme Court used to meet that have been restored, as we head upstairs. Uh, Directly above us is another unusual feature of the building, is uh, one of our original chandeliers. And um, we're... uh, (laughs) In the process of doing some work in the building right now, as you can see, so um, the chandelier though above us is original. Twenty of them in the Capitol uh, building was lit by gas back then. We didn't have electric lights; they hadn't quite been perfected yet. So the round keys on these fixtures would have been used to turn the gas lights on to shut them off. Uh, they're solid metal; they weigh about 400 pounds. Uh, The animal is an elk from the state coat of arms, and uh, underneath the elk, a shield with the Latin term uh, tuivor for uh, I will defend. Uh, Michigan saw our job as one of defense against the British because of our large border with the British. Um, One of the reasons the capital city was moved, From its original location in Detroit to Lansing was to get it farther away from the border with the enemy. Uh, The city of Detroit had been surrendered to the British in the War of 1812, so people were still keenly aware of that threat of maybe a second British invasion into Michigan. On display in the Capitol are replica battle flags from regiments that represented
2: the state during the Civil War. Let's learn more about one of the regiments, Michigan's 24th, and their role in preserving the Union.
4: The battle flags were, were terribly important during the war because they not only served as a, a link to the communities that these men came from. The 24th formed in Wayne County. Almost all of the men were from that one single county. And so they were a reminder of Michigan and of the communities that they'd come from. Most of these regiments would receive their battle flags in grand ceremonies before they marched off to war, sometimes handed over to them by the ladies who had hand-sewn the flags for the men of the regiments. They are also important logistically. As these flags move forward into battle, the regiment would form on the what they call the colors, form on the flags. So the Confederates recognized the quickest way to dishearten and confuse the Union troops was by dropping the colors. If they could shoot the flag bearer, have the colors go down, or even better yet, capture that flag, you would have a whole regiment that would literally be in disarray and not really know what they were supposed to do next. So they were really important logistically, and that battle flag of the 24th... um, The 24th was literally surrounded by the Confederates at Gettysburg, pounded on every side. They were trying to get the colors. They were trying to drop the flag. The Confederates were, and men of the color guard, would step in to pick up the flag as other men were killed. At one point, the colonel of the regiment, a man by the name of Henry Moreau, who was a a judge from Wayne County who had formed the regiment, Um, He um, picks the colors up when his last color bearer's been killed. He's holding the flag, and one of the privates of the regiment comes up, and he said the colonel of this regiment will never carry our flag as long as I'm alive. And he takes the colors from Colonel Moreau. Um, He's almost instantly killed. Another private picks the flag up. Um, He's killed. Moreau picks the flag up a second time. Uh, He's wounded. Um, Just incredible action you know the ironic thing about moreau is he's born in warrenton virginia virginia is his home state and he comes to michigan as a young man and establishes a law practice, becomes a judge, and forms the 24th Michigan and takes them back to Virginia and to Gettysburg, literally to do battle with his own countrymen, to do battle with boys that he probably grew up with. In fact, on their way to the battlefield at Gettysburg, he marches through Warrenton, Virginia, the 24th does, and marches past the cemetery where his own mother is buried. And just the irony of that really gets me every time when you think about that. So, um, yeah, an incredible story. Um, Most of the, uh, I mentioned, most of the 24th flag is gone. Um, What remains there is um, bullet torn and blood stained. We have stains on that flag from the men who died at Gettysburg.
1: Michigan has a bicameral legislature consisting of a Senate and a House of Representatives, and their chambers are among the most ornate in the country. Matt takes us inside the Senate chambers.
4: So this is the um, the Michigan Senate. You know, we have uh, 38 members of the body, each representing about a, uh, about a quarter of a million people. Our state population is uh, right around 10 million. It's sort of hovered around that. Um, the uh, senators serve four-year terms. Uh, they choose their desks on the floor based on seniority. So if you've been here the longest, you get the uh, first pick of the desks. And it's mostly personal preference, some like the front and some like the back. Uh, they do pick um, desks based on political party also. Republicans traditionally choose seats to the right Democrats to the left. Ah, uh, the desks are original. They were designed by Myers, especially for the the room. They cost uh, thirteen dollars ninety-seven and a half cents apiece when the building first opened. So, we got a pretty nice, solid walnut desk for fourteen bucks back then. Uh, years ago they had to add blocks of wood beneath the desk to raise them up slightly because people are so much bigger than we were back in the in the eighteen seventies. It's not something you always think about. Even when we were making restoration furniture. We had to replicate the original but make it larger to accommodate people's larger uh, frames, um, you know, in modern times. Uh, Beside the senator's desk is a roll-top desk where we keep some of the modern equipment. Our goal here with the restoration was to make it an accurate restoration but obviously include modern conveniences, but to try to camouflage them, try to hide them and blend them in with the uh, the building. And um, we think we've done a nice job with this roll-top. Um, laptop computers, so they can pull up all the bills that they're working on. Electronic voting systems, um, as they vote, um, pushing the buttons, their names register. on um, kind of camouflage plexiglass screens on the front wall And uh, basically, if they vote yes, their name would light up in green. If they vote no, it would light up in red. And the names register on those boards so the people above in the galleries can keep track of how the the senators are voting. And the building is always open to the public when they're in session. And uh, we've come on a non-session day here, but a a typical session is Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays for the, the Michigan Legislature. Um, Historically, a little bit more about the room. There's beautiful chandeliers in the chamber. Uh, They are original. There's 1,760 pieces of crystal and glass on each one. Once a year, they're lowered to the floor using chains and hoists. That'll get them down to the desk level where they can be cleaned a little bit easier. Uh, It takes two of our staff about half a day to clean each chandelier. And, um, you know, in this building, it's, it's... maintenance cleaning but it's it's preservation and conservation cleaning to to make sure that our capital never gets to the point it was in before restoration. This building was so bad, they talked very seriously about demolishing it, and then that was prior to their decision to restore. And a number of occasions, they came fairly close to, to tearing this down and building a modern office building to replace it. So we feel really fortunate that they made the decision they did to restore.
2: Indeed, this is such a beautiful chamber, and as we gaze up to the ceiling, uh, there are glass windows with seals from the fifty states.
4: Sure. Yeah, yeah. I think that it's unique to our state capital. I'm not aware of other capitals that have done this. And this was part of Meyer's original plan was to have all of the The coats of arms for the 50, well, what would have been um, the number of states that were in the Union at that time, not 50 states. Uh, The original panels, sadly, had literally been thrown out years ago in an attempt at modernization. They were replaced with plastic and plywood. Uh, During the restoration, we commissioned um, panels for each of the 50 states for their coats of arms. And um, there, also above the ceiling is a, a sunroof that brings in natural light through the uh, ceilings of the chamber to help um, um, light the rooms during session. The uh, couple of portraits on the far wall. Um, the gentleman on the left is Lafayette, and uh, a Frenchman who helped us fight the British during the Revolution. The gentleman to the right is Austin Blair, who was our governor during the, the Civil
2: War. As we left the Senate, we stood under the dome in the Grand Rotunda where the portraits of Michigan's governors look upon you. Even I recognized a few of the governor's portraits from my years living in Michigan.
4: We're in the, um, on the second floor rotunda now. Um, great view of the dome up above and also a, a glimpse of the glass floor beneath us on one. I mentioned earlier that it was designed to look like it sinks as you go higher in the building, and you may be catching a little bit of that illusion right here as you look down to the glass floor. Uh, portraits in the rotunda are of former governors. We try to keep our more recent governors' portraits on the second and third floor. And As governors leave office and we need to um, provide space for the new portraits that have been donated, we rotate these paintings around. Uh, Probably the portrait I get the most questions about is the gentleman off to our left. Well, yeah, both of those, but the gentleman immediately to our left is uh, John Swainson. Uh, The the painting looks very unusual, as as if it was never finished, and that's exactly how Swainson requested that that it appear. He was only 37 when he left office. And because of his young age, he felt that his career was not complete, Mm. so he wanted his portrait to reflect that. Swainson also was a veteran of World War II and had lost both of his legs to a landmine explosion in France, so he directed the artist to have his legs rendered just just a little bit lighter as a reminder of that. Next to him is George Romney, who was governor of the state of Michigan in the 1960s. his son, Mitt Romney, has uh, been in the news quite a bit uh, uh, as of uh, recently. Uh, oh, okay. William Milliken, good. Your, your history is excellent. Uh, James Blanchard, um, John Engler, our first and so far only female governor, Jennifer Granholm. And uh, over here we have a portrait of former Governor G. Menon Williams, better known to Michiganians by his nickname, Soapy. And uh, he got that nickname because his mother's family owned the Men and Soap Company. They made soap products. So uh, His brothers apparently were nicknamed Lather and Suds. <laughs> they, were, they were nicknames that didn't take off, I guess, like soapies. Uh, the ladies above are um, allegories. Uh, each of the ladies in the paintings represents something that the state was proud of when the Capitol was built. Uh, For instance, um, shipping uh, on the Great Lakes, of course, Uh, agriculture is a huge industry in Michigan, Um, education, and uh, science, justice, art and architecture, to name a few.
1: At one point, the legislature, judicial, and executive functions were housed in the Capitol. But that's no longer the case. We stopped by the office, mostly ceremonial, of Michigan's governor, and learned about the state's coat of arms.
4: We're standing in front of the governor's office, and our current governor, uh, Rick Snyder, you can see his office just beyond the double doors there. Uh, His main office is across the street, so he kind of uses this for more formal occasions, bill signings, Mm -hmm. press conferences. Uh, These two rooms were probably among the most accurately restored in the whole building because we had wonderful uh, photographs and drawings of what it looked like originally, so we were able to use those to, to restore it. The uh, furniture around the edge of the room is original, built by a Saginaw Michigan Furniture Company that's still in business today. Uh, Michigan produced more furniture than any state in the nation when our building opened, so it's a reminder of our mm-hmm. proud furniture-making past. Hinges and doorknobs, you'll notice here and all through the building, have our state coat of arms on them. And a real brief description of that: it's an elk on the left and a moose on the right, and um, the reason we have those animals on our coat of arms, even though there are very few of them in Michigan, is because our coat of arms was um, drawn by a territorial governor, Lewis Cass, who copied it from the Hudson Bay Fur Company logo, which had an elk and a moose on it. So that's the, really the only reason we have them. Um, Bor I mentioned earlier, is Latin for I will defend. You see that on the central part of the, the coat of arms. And we also incorporated part of the, the national coat of arms, uh, the national emblem, the eagle, and then above that, e pluribus unum, from many one, from many people, one country, or in this case, one, case, one state, united. Uh, bottom phrase on the very bottom of the coat of arms in Latin, uh, queris peninsulam amoinum curcum and which means, if you seek a pleasant peninsula, look about you. I'm very, very fond of our, our motto for Michigan. The uh, ceiling, back to the parlor here, the ceiling artwork above us in the governor's parlor is original. Uh, it was all um, uh, painstakingly restored, cleaned, and conserved during during the restoration. It took four people over two months to clean this one ceiling using Q-tips, literally Q-tips and cotton balls. Matthew give us a sense of how much it cost to build the capital and how much this restoration sure, has Sure sure yeah yeah that's an appropriate question um, it, it give you some comparisons the construction cost was a million and a half dollars and our restoration cost was 58 million Which is a considerable amount of money. And I'll say at the time there were a number of citizens that were concerned about the amount that was spent to restore this. Um, We make comparisons on what a new capital would have cost. We were faced with a dilemma. Something had to be done. We either had to restore this current building or build a new capital to replace it. It had gotten into that bad a state of disrepair. The cheapest estimates they got for a new modern structure, this was going back in the 1960s, they figured would have cost at least $100 million. So uh, we compare um, the restoration for this building and the cost of it to. Um, Actually, to a meal at any uh, popular fast food restaurant, it's about $6 per citizen to restore our building. And that's about what I'd spent on dinner at a fast food restaurant. And I don't know about the citizens of the state, but I'm willing to skip one of those to have this beautiful building here for my grandkids to to enjoy and, and, and to be a part of. So we think it was we consider it an investment in Michigan's future. And most people hopefully would agree with that, that it was money well spent.
2: As you can see from our various stops, the Capitol is vast and takes a lot of walking to go from place to place. As we continued the tour with Matt, we made our way to the House chambers.
4: There are 110 members of the House, um, each representing about 90,000 people, uh, two-year terms. um, uh, A lot of similarities in the House and Senate, same type of voting system. You can see they're in the... Process of, uh, of removing that so that we can put the carpeting in here. Mm-hmm. Um, chandeliers almost identical to those we saw over in the Senate. Uh, portraits on the far wall of Lewis Cass and Douglas Houghton. Cass mm-hmm. was a territorial governor, uh, U.S. Um, senator from Michigan, uh, secretary of war, U.S. secretary of state, uh, ran for president. And uh, gentleman next to him, Douglas Houghton, was our state's geologist in uh, Houghton Lake and Houghton, okay. Michigan, both named after him. The portrait on the left, you can't really see it from here, one closest to us is of Stevens T. Mason, and uh, we called him the boy governor. He was 19 when he was secretary of the Michigan Territory, 24 when he was elected as the first governor of the state. Um, to this day, he holds the national record for being the youngest governor.
1: Stepping out of the House chambers, we got a chance to marvel at the marble floors. And if these floors could talk, as Matt tells the story, here's what they'd say.
4: The floors, I don't know that I mentioned, are original uh, throughout the building. Those that are not carpeted are made of cast iron. This is a marble and limestone floor. White squares are Vermont marble. Um, black squares are um, fossilized limestone from Vermont and a fossilized meaning there are beautiful fossil samples in the in the black squares and a lot they look a lot, they're, they're, they're a lot like um, snails if you will large snails um, maclorites I believe they're the scientific um, references. Finally we wrapped up our tour at the Michigan
2: Supreme Court chambers At one time Michigan's highest court met at the Capitol one of the three branches of government once housed here, as we learned. Now legislative committees and hearings are held inside the former Supreme Court chambers.
4: So this is the um, the original chamber for the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court was housed here from 1879 to uh, 1970. In fact, they're one of our last departments of the state to move out to other um, other building Um, And again, it was mostly for lack of space. They really needed a a building that could accommodate their growing needs. And um, this is used now as a committee room. Okay. Um, It is restored to look very similar to what it looked like when the court met here, with a few exceptions. There's a large U-shaped desk that has been added to the central part of the room, and that's to accommodate the members of our Senate Appropriations Committee. And their job is to um, make the decisions on how the tax dollars are spent. Our budget in Michigan is a uh, a little short of $50 billion a year. So it's a huge job for them to make those decisions on how the money is dispersed. I think,
2: Matthew, one of the unusual things in in terms of touring the Capitol here is that all branches of of government are represented in this building. And I think that that's a, a... that's unique among capitals, you know, capital structures in that we've got the legislative, the executive, sure. and the
4: judicial branch sure. all
2: in the same sure. building. Sure.
4: Yeah, yeah, that is unusual. And some states, I think, in keeping even with the um, the balance of power and the separation of power, they not only have that um, theoretically, but physically in separate buildings. And I, th- I think Michigan probably is a little bit unique in the fact that they are still housed in the, in the same building, even though technically the court does not meet here on a regular basis anymore. Originally they did, and in fact we will still periodically hold historic uh, meetings in, in this historic courtroom.
2: Matthew, we thank you so much for being with us from? on World Footprints today. To do it.
1: Thank you so much for joining us for today's World Footprints radio show. All of our shows are archived on our website, so if you've missed a show or if you want to hear our World Footprints travel report giving you the day's breaking travel and world news, visit us at worldfootprints.com. And while there, subscribe to our newsletter, click on the social media icons to follow us on your favorite social network, and check out our low-cost cultural immersion discovery tour to Vietnam. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time.
2: Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio, because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, There are not thousands of people, For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. This has been a presentation
4: of World Footprints Media,
2: all rights reserved.